This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Self-approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we take people's questions. Some email them at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. We're happy to receive them there. Or if you're more comfortable, you can call us here live at 843-525-1859. And uh, you can dictate your question or go on the air live, however you'd like to give it to us. So we're glad you're here for this next hour. And uh, as you have questions, again, call us 843-525-1859 or email us here at tbl at wagp.net. And as um, you uh, present your questions, we will do our best by the grace of God to respond to each and every one. So let's go ahead and get started, Rick. All right, Pastor, I believe we do have a live caller ready to go online. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is James Harrell. I'm calling from Savannah, Georgia. Um, I've, Dr. Brogy, I've listened to your um, several of your um, classes on the Search of Scriptures app. Uh, I just finished the Bibliology um, series, and I'm always having these discussions with people about you know the, the inerrancy of Scripture, the validity of Scripture. Um, and one question that's come up is about basically the topic of the lost books, um, specifically books that talk about Jesus having a wife and children. Yes. And I was wondering if you could explain, you know, the how a, a good way to approach that discussion with a non-Christian who's asking it from, you know, an honest perspective, not necessarily a perspective just to discredit Christianity. No, yeah, you will run into this, obviously, at some point. Folks are going to ask you, well, why do you believe the books that you believe? And so there's uh, two uh, areas of disputed material, not disputed amongst Christians or Jews, but really more amongst liberal theologians. There's the Inner Testament books that are known as the Apocrypha. Uh, they are books written between the last author of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, namely uh, the Gospel according to Matthew. And the question is, well, why were these books not included in the canon of Scripture? And of course, if you've just worked through that course on bibliology, I go through various proofs that God gave within the Scriptures in terms of how do we determine what's canonized, what's inspired by God, and what's not. And so there are certain marks uh, that God puts on a book that demonstrate the supernatural nature of that book. Among other things, they are uh, consistent with previous revealed revelations. So, for instance, if Moses teaches there's a resurrection, as he does, and Christ builds his case uh, for the resurrection to the Sadducees out of Moses, and Daniel does, and another book comes along and denies, say, the bodily resurrection, 
then it's going to be rejected when they know, well, Moses was a man of God. This person can't be a man of God because his revelation is not consistent with what God revealed. And so God would authenticate his men by sometimes signs and wonders and miracles, and sometimes just through prophecy. And so Moses gave the test of a prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18. How do we know a person is a prophet of God if they say, well, this is going to happen in, you know, in the future? Well, how do you know if it's way out there in the future and no one's around to really test it? And God warns, he says, um, in fact, he speaks of the Messiah coming. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. So the Messiah, this is a messianic prophecy, will be like Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that uh, whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And then he goes on, he speaks of false prophets. He says, the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may, uh, you may say in your heart, well, how will we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be, af- uh, you shall not be afraid of him. So there were certain tests by which Uh, both Jews and early Christians discerned which books should be part of the canon of Scripture. And so the Jewish Bible is identical to ours. None of the Jews have ever received the intertestament apocryphal books. Now, they are of great historical interest because they do shed light on what took place, especially as it relates to Israel during that 400-year period. And as you read those books, it helps you to understand what the historical setting was when Christ left heaven and incarnated himself. The second set of books that you are referencing here are those books that were written after the completion in the canon of the New Testament. The last book to be written in the New Testament was the book of Revelation. It was written approximately 95 AD. There were some books that were written 110, 125, like the Epistle According to Barnabas, the Gospel According to St. Thomas, and so on. Those were pseudepigrapha. Pseudo means false. Pigrapha, uh, the false writings, graphe. So we speak of the false writings, and the pseudepigrapha books are usually those books that are written after the completion of the canon of Scripture. So um, again, uh, to have God's divine fingerprints on a book, he authenticated both the message and the messenger. And so the apostles came with signs, wonders, and miracles that authenticated them as God's men. And so the books that they wrote or the books that they appointed someone to write on their behalf were those that were considered the revelation of God and part of the canon of Scripture. And those um, books that came later that, of course, uh, directly contradict uh, those books that God had given through those whom he had authenticated or appointed through those whom he had authenticated— those books that contradicted it, it would be the same principle that the Jews applied with the Intertestament books. They'd say, well, you say you're a prophet, but you're denying what Moses said. You're not a false, you're not a prophet, you're a false prophet. And again, even as Moses mentioned, there were some other internal proofs within a book that showed its authority. 
Uh, one is uh, short-range prophecy. Anyone can say, well, this is what's going to happen a thousand years from now. It's quite another thing to say, well, this is going to happen in your lifetime. And so how do we know, for instance, Isaiah was inspired by God? He not only gave long-range prophecies that go all the way into the millennial reign of the Messiah, but he gave short-range prophecies. For instance, he even predicted the name of a king, Cyrus, who was going to be born and decisions he was going to make ever before he was going to be born and ever before his parents named him Cyrus. And so, you know, the, 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 the nature of the prophecy is highly, highly specific. But again, if um, uh, you study the course on bibliology, and it's not for the faint of heart, it's like 500 pages of notes. So you may have listened to it. It would be helpful, too, to get the full set of notes, which we make available to people and you want to focus specifically on the area concerning canonicity and how we uh, have come up with 66 books and not more than that. That's a great question, and I appreciate him uh, studying the course in bibliology. In fact, a lot of our home education students have taken that course for a high school credit. They use it as an elective, and what a wise thing for a parent to do before their child goes off to the university where the Bible is just torn apart and ripped to shreds and said to be false and can't be relied upon. And in fact, in the section on inerrancy, I go through dozens of passages that people use to say, well, this is a direct contradiction with what God said over here. And when you study them contextually and carefully, you discover there are no contradictions in the Bible. But these are the kinds of issues some professor with a PhD after his name is going to stand up in the classroom to try to tear apart the faith of uh, young men and women who go off to the university. And some of them are persuaded because they want to be persuaded because they're not really converted. Um, But for those who are converted, we need to ground them and prepare them with a sound apologetic. Absolutely. All right, let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Debbie dictated her question, she'd like to know what percentage of Christians are five-point Calvinists. And in the plain reading of Scripture, how can anyone conclude Christ's atonement is limited? Well, Debbie, I don't think you can conclude that it's limited, as you infer by the nature of your question. Just a simple reading of Scripture would lead someone to conclude that Jesus didn't die for some or most or just the elect, a limited atonement, that is a particular atonement as it's sometimes described, but Jesus died for all. And really, the death of Christ for all people is um, part of the basis of condemnation. No one can meet God in heaven and say, well, look, even if I wanted to believe, you didn't provide a way of escape. Well, they won't meet God in heaven, but at the great white throne, which is uh, before he creates the new heaven and the new earth, and it's the final judgment of all the lost. But none of those will be able to say, well, you didn't even give me an opportunity to believe because there is no provision allowed for me. No, they won't be able to say that. So I can look at anyone in the eye without, you know, taking my words and having to carefully use them, well, Christ died for those who will believe, or Christ died for those who would repent, or Christ died. No, I can look at anyone in the eye and say that Christ died for you. Christ actually loves you, and he proved his love towards you, and that he specifically died in your place. So, um, again, this might be helpful for someone. Our first caller raised the Institute of Biblical Studies, 
and one of the courses that I have deals with the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, and we deal with the five points of Calvinism. Look, there's a lot of things that John Calvin said that were true and accurate and right, but not everything he taught was correct. And a lot of Calvin's theology was flavored by his view of the nation of Israel. He had a distorted view of the Jewish people, and he adopted it from the Roman Catholic Church in which he was raised. He put a different spin on it. The Roman Catholic Church taught that uh, the um, that they as an institution were the the new Israel and that national Israel, well, God's finished with them because of their unbelief. God's over and done with them, and they have no opportunity at all uh, to embrace Jesus uh, in any different way than, say, a Gentile would. And so um, it's a distorted view in terms of the promises that God made to Israel. It was unconditional covenant uh, that he made. It had nothing to do with Israel's obedience. It had everything to do with God. God made it when Abraham was asleep. It's what we call unilateral covenant. And when it was made, it was an eternal covenant. It wasn't predicated uh, on their obedience. There's coming a time when God will fulfill the covenant to the people of Israel. Every promise he made will be completely fulfilled, and we will we will see that. With, with that said, let me just say parenthetically that there's a lot of things that Calvin said that were true and accurate, but because he believed that the church was the new Israel, it flavored the way he had to interpret chapters like Romans 9, 10, and 11. He saw it applying only to the elect. His definition of elect, his definition of foreknowledge um, was predicated on how he viewed the Jew. And if you listen to my series on Revelation, I make some direct quotes by John Calvin that are really embarrassing to Christians. In fact, if you go to Yad Vashem, which is the um, Israeli version of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, or I should say the Holocaust Museum is the American version of Yad Vashem because that came first, and it's the most profound, most extensive um, collection of historical documents and events that took place around the Holocaust. But if you go to Yad Vashem, it's very embarrassing when you see quotations by John Calvin and Martin Luther and Augustine, highlighted there on the wall, and the hateful, ugly things they said about the Jewish people. So, again, um, what percentage? I don't know. It's difficult to say. I will say that at least in the American church, it's become much more popular what's called Reformed theology. But even the term Reformed theology is a stolen term. It's much like the term Uh, charismatic. Am I a charismatic Christian? Well, I would say no if you mean by that, do I speak in tongues? Do I think that, um, you know, God through an individual can do a miracle? I believe God can do a miracle. Surely he can. He can do whatever he wants to do, though miracles have never been normative in the course of biblical history. But God has, in the course of time, only done miracles through certain individuals. And not everyone can do the miracles that the apostles did. In fact, Paul gives as a defense for his apostleship in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that he could, did the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. And so uh, I'm not a charismatic in the charismatic sense of the term, as it's been used maybe in the last 40 or 50 years, 
But do I believe in the charismata that God gives gifts to his people? Yes, every born-again, blood-bought Christian has a spiritual gift. In the term for Reformed theology has been redefined since the Protestant Reformation. Not all the Reformers believed what John Calvin believed in terms of the extent of the atonement. In fact, I think it's highly debatable that John Calvin himself even believed in a limited atonement. My son Jeremy, when he was at Liberty University, wrote a paper on Calvin's view of the atonement, and I thought he did a superb job in documenting from Calvin's own commentaries that John Calvin himself did not believe the atonement was limited, that it was unlimited, that Christ died for all people. But I will say that here in the United States, Reformed theology in terms of the Calvinistic emphasis and its eschatology, the way they view last things, the end of time, they see no significance for Israel. Most of Revelation has already been completed and fulfilled. It's historical. It's not futuristic with the exception of maybe chapter 19 on where Christ uh, comes again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, their, their view of the church. Calvin, listen, John Calvin, he thought because they were the new Israel in Geneva, he wanted to set up a theocracy familiar, similar to what you see what you see in the Old Testament in Israel. And so there was a fellow, Michael Savellis, who differed with him on a point of doctrine, and Calvin said, we're going to have him burned at the stake. And then he added, make sure the wood is plenty green. So you know, he had some distorted views on some things, and so people kind of wave the flag of Calvin, but he did some things that are really quite embarrassing and less than faithful and true to God's Word. Um, Percentage-wise, I don't know. I might say that maybe 25% of the American church would call themselves Reformed in the current-day definition of the Reformed faith, but not much more than that. And I will say, look, there's some really good brothers and sisters in Christ who'd identify themselves in this realm. I think they have a distorted view on some issues, but there's some good people that I would have fellowship with, but they have some distorted views on a number of different issues. And and the average person, look, I get travel to other countries of the world, and sometimes they'll say, well, I heard about this guy, John Calvin, and, and you know, how it did he come to this conclusion? And how did you come to this? And you have to be educated to these views. Don't tell me that your simple reading of Scripture led you to believe that the atonement was limited. Someone educated you into that position does not come from the simple reading of Scripture. And in most parts of the world, they do not believe it. The body of Christ in most parts of the world do not believe the things that Calvin wrote and spoke about. Anyway, um, Again, this would be a good issue to take up if you wanted to study it in depth in my course on soteriology. Again, the Institute of Biblical Studies, the course on soteriology, where I deal with these issues in great depth. All right. A caller just dictated their question. They'd like to know if you have a series uh, or a particular sermon on God's love for people, specifically how God interacted with people. Uh, more specifically, special needs, those with learning disabilities, outcasts, and those with low self-esteem while he was on earth. Uh, if there isn't such a series, would you consider speaking on this topic? Well, look, if someone has like a low self-esteem, um, you know, how, how do you change that? You change it by renewing your mind. And so a lot of psychobabble has 
been brought into the church. I had a fellow in my office last week, and he said, I have a distorted view of God because I think of God the way I think of my earthly father, and I just feel like, you know, uh, I'm I'm wounded and I, I can't move forward. And I said to him, well, look, that's the sales pitch that this Christian psychologists are selling you. But that's not what the scripture teaches. I don't care what kind of a home you were raised in. When you're born again, you are a new person. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away and all things have started new. And so you're born again and you have the word of God. And as you read and study the word of God, the spirit of God, who's your ultimate teacher who lives in you, changes the way you think about God. So your dad could have been a two-legged rascal, a murderer, a drug addict, a, a bank robber, but that doesn't mean that you have to project those same kinds of thoughts on your heavenly father. That's just Christian psychobabble trying to tell you that. It's not true. It's not taught in the scripture. So if you um, really want to get a grip on these things, I would say study the book of Romans. The, Roman, the book of Romans is God's constitution. Um, so to speak, for the Christian church. And every major doctrine of Scripture is described in Romans. And so when you discover how depraved you are, and John Calvin was right, man is totally depraved. Salvation does not begin with you. It begins with God. By nature, there's none who seeks God, not even one. Now, we would debate, though, with John Calvin as to whom God would seek and with whom he will initiate. Lay that aside. When you realize what you were by nature and what God makes you in Christ, your whole view of God changes. And yes, you know, if people have disabilities and things like that, I've addressed these issues in sermons. You know, God takes responsibility when Moses, of course, you know, pleads, well, God, you know, I can't speak. And God said, who made man's mouth? You know, uh, I created you the way you are. And, and God actually uses our weaknesses as pluses, read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because it's in weakness that we find his strength. It's in our disabilities where we are all the more needing to depend upon him for the strength that he gives. But I would say to this person, listen to my series on the book of Romans. This will change your life in terms of how you view God and how you view the love of God on you and on people. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Bill from Stevens City, Virginia wants to know, um, actually he says, Dr. Brogy, this is a Christian history question, not an actual Bible question, but I hope you don't mind. Would you explain the main purposes for the Christian crusade? My limited understanding is that it was intended to defeat the aggression and conquest of Islamic forces that wanted to capture Europe. Islam forces had been held off by the French earlier, and this was a second pushback, and Christians wanted to regain the Holy Land. I've heard some disparaging remarks Christians that Christians that conducted those campaigns were ugly and brutal. Can you share what you know of the Crusades along with major goals and how well they achieved them, and was it an honorable set of wars? Well, we could spend the next hour just on this question. I love church history. Uh, there's a couple of books that might be helpful to you. One is uh, Erdman's. It's put out by Erdman's Press. It's called The History of Christianity. Uh, it comes in and out of print, 
The last time I looked, it was out of print, but because it's been published for so many years, you could Google it at uh, Amazon and you can find a used copy. And instead of spending a hundred bucks for it, um, you could probably get it for ten dollars plus shipping. Great place to find used book or at eBay as well. Um, but let me just say, there's a lot of things that have been done in the name of Christianity that have not been done by Christians. And I think the Crusades are an excellent example of that. I cannot definitively say, obviously, that every single person involved in the Crusades was an unbeliever. But generally speaking, the Crusades were initiated, and there are different phases to it, by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, denies justification by grace alone through faith alone. They are Christianized people but not necessarily born again. And again, I'm not saying that all Roman Catholics are not born again. There are born again Roman Catholics who through their personal study of Scripture or through listening to the gospel preached on radio, television, Internet, that have found Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and they've been converted. But during the time of the Crusades, Most of those who participated in those armies were Roman Catholics working under the authority of the Pope who taught a false gospel, who preached a different kind of Christ as it related to his death, burial, and resurrection. And so they did some absolutely horrendous things in the name of Christianity. Um, And that was very sad. And so in the Muslim's mind, You know, this is what Christians believe. In fact, in the Jewish mind, this is what Christians believe. When when I've done Jewish evangelism, in fact, it was a shock to a leading rabbi in Jerusalem who's become a good friend, who teaches in a number of yeshivas and some seminaries in Jerusalem. He lives in Jerusalem. Uh, Yeshiva is an equivalent to a male seminary in the United States, a seminary in Israel is equivalent to a female Christian Bible college, so to speak. But those are the terms that they, they use. And in his mind, like he'd see the Orthodox church in Jerusalem, the Roman Catholic church in Jerusalem, and much of the hatred that they display towards Jewish people. And he thinks, well, this is what Christianity represents. And he has since come to learn, oh, there's a real difference between those who are Christianized and those who are born again. And now it's becoming more challenging because the term evangelical is becoming watered down. And when we first met, you know, we could say, well, we usually call these born-again Christians evangelicals, but now that term is becoming, you know, diluted, and people who are calling themselves evangelical are really not evangelical at all. So a survey that was done uh, not long ago found out that 52% of so-called evangelicals in America believe that Jesus was created. Well, they're not evangelical. 100% of evangelicals do not believe that Jesus was created. They believe he's God, a very God who had no beginning or end, that he took on humanity, but that he did not come into existence. That's Arianism, uh, 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 an early heresy that the early church had to address. So the Crusades, for the most part, represent a movement that was done by Christianized people but who were not born again, and they did much in the name of Christ that God would not have sanctioned. But if you wanted to study this, I, this source resource I just gave you, uh, Erdman's The History of Christianity, 
I think it would be very, very helpful to you. And they do an excellent uh, write-up there on the Crusades and the different phases of it. And I think you'd find that very, very useful. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and Leon would like you to please... Let's skip that one for right now. That's too involved. Let's go to the next one. Teresa says she is an online follower and would like to know... What happens when a person becomes a believer and gets baptized? And also, would you please see the attached document? And she, there's the attached document. And basically, the upshot of that document is that there is a, a second filling of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. We would okay. like to know what your take is on this. Okay, so here's what happens when you are converted. At the moment of conversion, you receive for the first time God the Holy Spirit. And again, maybe just pushing one of these courses. I don't make any money off them or anything. I pour my heart and blood and sweat into them and spend hundreds of hours in preparing some of these courses over the last 30 years so that God's people can be edified. And I teach them on a master's level. And so it's several hundred pages, the course on pneumatology. Pneumatos is the Greek word for spirit. And so pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. And so... Uh, Again, I address these issues in detail, but in him, in Christ, I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 1. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our own inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So when you listen to the message of truth, that is defined here as not just gospel, but the gospel. It's articular. The term gospel just means good news. It's used in a broad sense of any good news, in both in and outside of the Bible. But the gospel points to a specific good news. Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance, the gospel. And he goes on to define it as the death, burial, and the resurrection. So when you listen to the gospel and you believe it, having also believed You're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So at the moment of conversion, you receive God the Holy Spirit. That's when he comes to live inside of you. That's why when you come to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, it says that uh, if you don't have him, you're not one of his. Uh, It's a mark of conversion. And Paul can say, and by the way, this is called the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, we have all been baptized by one spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, unlike this sheet that Rick just handed me, happens at the moment of conversion. There were some people in the course of church history in the early part of the 20th century who introduced a second work of grace after conversion. And Pentecostal theology has forever changed, but initially Pentecostals taught that you receive Christ as your Savior, you were saved, but then later on you had this second work called the baptism of the Holy Spirit accompanied by speaking in tongues where you had this deeper work of grace. That's just false. It's not even true. It's not even close to being true. And what they defined as tongues looks nothing like the New Testament. Again, if you want to take a course on this, I also have a course on in the Institute of Biblical Studies on Spiritual Gifts, and I walk through uh, really the, the error and the heresies of Pentecostalism, and, and even Pentecostals have changed their doctrine. They used to teach historically 
that uh, initially when you were baptized with the Holy Spirit in spoken tongues, that's when you were saved. They don't teach that anymore. So now they teach you receive Christ. And later on, you have this second work of grace accompanied by speaking in tongues. And so you'll go maybe to a Pentecostal church. They'll ask you if you've had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning have you spoken in tongues? You might say, well, no, I haven't. Well, let us help you. And they'll convince you that, look, just say these phrases like you've got to prime the pump and repeat them over and over and just kind of let yourself go. And before you know it, you'll be speaking in tongues. If I were to ask you what group is characterized by speaking in tongues, being slain in the spirit where, you know, you uh, fall down on the floor and you've seen guys like Benny Hinn who kind of waves his hand and hundreds go down and Rick is, Rick is mimicking it over here in his seat. And, uh, or you see these movements where people are controlling, uh, laughing uncontrollably or sometimes even barking like dogs. Uh, and I ask you now, what group of so-called Christians does this represent? Most of you would say Pentecostals. And I would say, well, actually, it represents a form of Hinduism. Because if you go to India today and you go online and just uh, type in speaking in tongues, Hindus, and you can watch some Hindu services who obviously you know are not Christians, and you can watch them speak in tongues and the way they speak in tongues and the sound that they make no different from English-speaking people, and this uncontrollable laughter and falling on the floor. It's what Hindus do. This didn't originate in biblical Christianity. There's no basis for it. So when you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. At that moment, you're filled with the Spirit. You're never commanded to be baptized by the Spirit again because that is unbroken. However, while you're filled with the Spirit, you can, through rebellion in your life, never lose the Holy Spirit's presence because the same book of Ephesians in 4.30 says you're sealed with him for the day of redemption. He's God's earnest, his pledge, his down payment that what he started he'll complete. You are commanded to be filled with the Spirit because um, you may not consistently walk in the Spirit. It has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. And so even if you didn't want to listen to the whole course, go to the Spiritual Gifts course, Institute of Biblical Studies, listen to uh, the section, I think it's section six, on sign gifts in the New Testament, and I walk through what really is tongues, why are the tongues that we're seeing today have nothing to do with what you read in Scripture, and I think your question will be answered. Good question. Let's go to the next one. We have a caller who's been waiting. All right. We do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Well, good morning. How are you, my friend? What can we do to help? Fine. Thank you, sir. Yeah, my question is in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Uh, I think what it talks about the sheep's voice and all that stuff. The Lord would know my sheep, my voice. Yes. I hear, I hear a lot of people, like the, the, some people in the uh, TV preaching, saying, well, you know, the sheep got like a nice voice. Uh, I don't heard a book by Jim Osmond. He wrote a book. It's called God Doesn't Whisper. So, so it's, it's, it's a lot of people think that uh, when Elijah God spoke to him in a small, still voice, that really is not speaking internal voice. It's an ex- external voice when God called him out. So he had to walk out out, out of the cave to hear the God, the voice of God. It wasn't nothing that it wasn't an internal voice. It was con- so comparing to that to the John chapter ten, I think verse seven, my sheep know my voice. So it, can you? 
can I clarify more about the, the sure. voice of yeah. God? Yeah, no, God? this is a great, great question. I appreciate you asking it. And I might just suggest, uh, since we have finished Revelation, and before we begin our next book of the Bible, which I, I told people we'd do it this fall, and we will we'll start the first Sunday in December before fall is complete and December 21st comes. Uh, with that said, uh, I did a 10-week series on Elijah the prophet, and I have a whole message on his encounter with God, and you might want to listen to that. But let me, because we try to keep it to one question, and they're stacking up. Let me address the John chapter 10 uh, passage that you reference. Uh, Jesus makes this statement, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. And so Jesus in the broad context is speaking of the good shepherd, and he's contrasting him with the hireling, the, the, the hired hand who comes along for the sake of money. And, but when danger comes, he runs and he, he, he takes off, and he has no real love and no concern for the sheep. And so having gone through that great pericope with his disciples, they go to the Feast of Dedication that took place at Jerusalem. This is an interesting feast, the Feast of Dedication that's mentioned here in 1022. To most of us, it's known as Hanukkah. It's also referred to as the Feast of Lights. It was not one of the seven sanctioned feasts that God dictated through Moses in the Old Testament, but it was something that took place during the Intertestament period. Our first caller asked about the books written after the completion of the New Testament canon, but I mentioned some of the books written between the Old and the New Testament, some of these historical books, and they shed great light on some prophecies even in the book of Daniel and what took place during this 400-year period. And one of the events that took place, of course, was um, the recapturing of the, uh, the, the, the temple and a miracle that took place. And so they celebrate the Feast of Lights in while it was not God-sanctioned, it was a, a memory of God's goodness to Israel, kind of like the Feast of Purim. Anyway, so Jesus is dealing with some people who did not believe him. He says, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. So when you're converted, you have a different response to Jesus. One, you believe he's Lord. You follow him as Lord. You're not saved by following him. But if you are saved, you will hear his voice. How do you hear it? Some audible voice? No, you hear it through the record of Scripture. Everything we know about Jesus that we know to be true and accurate is found in the New Testament and the Old Testament prophecies, of course, that speak of him. Because in one sense, the whole Old Testament is about Christ. He said, the scriptures speak about me. He said, Moses wrote about me. He said, Abraham saw my day and believed. So really beginning in Genesis, Jesus is still the hero of the Bible. But you hear God's voice as you read the scripture. And so, you know, the writer to the Hebrews says today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
And contextually, he's going back to the time when they were at Kadesh Barnea, and they heard a clear command from God, but they didn't listen to it. And so he's taking that same principle. You've got some clear commands from God given through the Holy Scripture and through my servants, and you need to obey. So he's not talking about some text message like Beth Moore gets, some email, some Christian leader. Oh, no, no, God's speaking to me. Hold on just a second. God is saying, you know, and they give him these verbatim things. Or Sarah Young and her, you know, uh, Jesus following series that have been written now, not just for adult women, but teenagers and children. And this is just sheer heresy. This is like beyond imagination that so-called evangelicals are buying into this stuff. But what we are speaking about is what Jesus will again echo in John chapter 14 and verse 21. It's the same principle in John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them. Again, we're talking about obedience. Uh, He who keeps them is the one who loves me. They're one of my sheep. The one who loves me, I'll be loved by my Father, and I will disclose himself. So we don't earn eternal life. He says in verse 28, I give eternal life. It's not earned. It's gifted. It's given as a gift. You don't earn gifts. You receive gifts. But when you receive Jesus as Lord and his gift of eternal life, your life changes in good works and obedience, hearing and responding to the voice of Christ is found in Scripture is a mark and a sign of genuine conversion. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, and Marge from Savannah writes, what is an appropriate length for shorts and dresses for teen girls? Are two-piece swimsuits okay? I've heard some describe biblical modesty as covering from the neck to the knees, and others, even leaders in my church, who dress the same as the world. Um, as a mom of two girls who want to be stylish, this has been a frequent topic in our home. Please offer your thoughts, and how did you handle a girl in the hot south near the coast? Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a great question. And again, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter's, uh, Peter as well addressed these issues. For instance, in 1 Timothy 2, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. This is one of the not buts of Scripture, where he means not this only, but also this. He's not saying, as some have assumed, that women are not to braid their hair, wear jewelry, or costly garments. It's one of the not but subjects. Peter obviously when he addresses the adornment of a woman, is not excluding the fact that they can't braid their hair or wear jewelry or whatever or dresses. Because obviously when he says, um, you know, wives be submissive to your husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. How? As they observe your chaste, and respectful behavior. Then he says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So again, Peter specifically says, hey, listen, 
Um, don't let it be the outside only. And a woman, you know, the way God created her tends to adorn herself. You know, my wife reminds me, you know, I was made out of dirt. She was made uh, out of, a, you know, in a garden. And, uh, you know, and, and women are just differently. James recognizes the way a man looks in the mirror and the way a woman looks in the mirror. Recently, my wife said, get the shaving cream out of your ear. It's still in your ear as I was going out the door. Well, you know, a woman looks in the mirror differently. She studies and adorns, and we like that. Uh, we're glad that they do. But he's no more saying that they can't braid their hair than they should wear a dress. With that said, this is one of the not buts of Scripture. Jesus said, not only do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. It's not that you aren't a slave. A characteristic of a follower of Christ is he is a slave of Christ. But you're also my friends. And so, again, it's an issue of emphasis. We need to work on the inside. And so, two key words, modestly and discreetly. Uh, let me deal with the second word, discreetly. Some women dress in a way that calls attention to themselves. It may be modest. There's nothing that's being revealed, but it's not discreet. It's like, whoa, you know, uh, who's this? Cinderella coming in for the ball um, when most people are dressed normally? Or, you know, it, it's one of those, wow, look at that outfit, um, where it calls attention to you. And that's not what you want to do. Um, but the biggest focus here that your question asked deals with the first word, modestly. And so, you know, how short is short? Well, you know, um, it shouldn't be seductive. And sadly, you know, today young ladies uh, dress one way when they come to church and they dress another way on their Facebook page and they dress another way on their Instagram page. And they reveal parts of their body that really no one should see but their husband. And sadly, because some dads are not in tune to what is happening, some, some, some Christian men want their wives to reveal some things, kind of like they're a piece of meat, and they say, look what I got. That's, that's really sick. That's degrading. And, you know, when you, though, set that example through your wife— what do you expect your daughter's going to do? And so a woman's dress should be modest. And, you know, I know everyone wants to show their cleavage today. Look, what, what, that, that's a part of your body that your, your husband should see. And it's not open for the general public. Now, what you may do in your backyard where no one is around in terms of your bathing suit and what you do out in public on the beach may be something entirely different. But it needs to be modest. And, hey, look, what, what if all the women came to church in their panties and bras next Sunday? You say, well, what are you talking about, Pastor? That's the typical dress of a woman on a beach and sometimes even more revealing. And so it's not a mystery, but we're living in a culture where lawlessness is increased. Most people's love has grown cold. And dads are out of touch because they've become callous by their own viewing habits and the things that they watch on television and the things they let their children watch on television. And you've got to be careful here. Guard your heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the issues of life. What I would say to this caller, where are they writing from? Is this from Massachusetts or oh, this is from Savannah? I would encourage you to go listen to my first Timothy series 
and listen to the message I have on 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, or go to my 1 Peter <coughs> series and listen to the message out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Well, the next one is from Massachusetts, Orange, Massachusetts. Amy writes, in light of recent events in our nation, I'm hoping you can provide some context for me. How do we measure verses like that in James 3, 17 and 18, 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, Romans 13, 1 to 7, and Titus 3, 1 against the revolution of 1776 that precipitated the birth of the United States? I've had many argue that the acts of the revolution were in contrast to Scripture as a defense to the current riots and upheaval happening in our nation. I also wanted to thank you for your willingness to be God's servant. I've been thanking God since finding your series and services online in June. You're truly a blessing and have helped deepen my walk with Christ on many levels. I pray God continues to use you uh, to reach his people. Well, in Romans 13, it says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Um, And those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. You find a very similar admonition uh, that Peter writes and also Paul records to Titus. Now, I'm not sure what your thought is behind the James text, except to say in James 3, um, God is contrasting the wisdom, so to speak, that comes from below, that's not of God, that uh, comes versus that which comes from above, true wisdom. And so I'm not sure where you're going with that. The only thing I can do is guess and say, well, if God appoints the leaders and he is representative of wisdom from above, then how do you have godless leadership? Um, So I I think you're taking the James text out of its context. So let me respond. Um, And you mentioned the Revolutionary War. And, of course, if you're a Christian and you're living in Boston during the time of the American Revolution, you grew up in England. But maybe in your 20s, uh, you and your family, you migrated to from England to what became known as New England. We were just in New England recently, and I say, yeah, Sterling and Springfield and Worcester and Barry, and these are all Lamonster. These are all names from uh, England itself, which those early uh, migrators uh, used to name their, their towns across New England. Uh, but, you know comes a time you're established, you built your home, maybe you have a business, maybe your children were born in Massachusetts, but your mother country, England, where you were raised, and maybe your parents are still living there, they're putting in pressure on you to to pay more and more taxes. And so this became a big issue in 18th century America. You know, should you yield to the political authority of England uh, or should you do what some were advocating and no longer pay taxes? And there were some injustices that were taking place at the hands of the mother country. And so, of course, it led to a revolution. And so should you as a Christian submit to the king and the queen, or do you support the revolution? Do you support the homeland? And some would say there's no precedent for a revolt. God said obey the governing authorities. Uh, Romans chapter 13. But if you read the history, you discover that for about 11 years, the founders had been petitioning the King of England, uh, the King of Great Britain, 
to stop many of his unlawful and unbiblical actions that came against the colonists. And um, the monarch ignored their grievances. They did not listen to their voice. And then he sent 25,000 troops into the colonies for the purpose of seizing their property and invading their homes and imprisoning their people without trials. And they were uh, breaking the Magna Carta that, you know, British common law was, was built on and the English Bill of Rights. And, and so King George III started down a, a path of violence and the Christians argued from Romans 12, the previous chapter, that they had a right to defend themselves. So you will meet even Christians today who will say, well, we shouldn't have had the American Revolution. I think they're wrong. The fact is, whether you think I'm right or they're wrong, um, or they're right, doesn't really matter. The fact is, is that we have a government today that is well established, and we are to submit to it. Unless, of course... That government asks us to uh, disobey what God has said. And my, oh my, oh my, we will see what will happen with the state of Georgia, the two senators there. Uh, This is like critical. If, If Joseph Biden becomes the next official president of the United States, obviously the election has not been uh, officially sanctioned. But if he does, and if we lose those two seats in January, America is going to be a different place. And if you're a Christian and you voted for the Democratic platform, shame on you. You either did it in gross ignorance or selfishness because how could you vote for that platform knowing what it teaches that is so godless, so anti-God, anti-Christ? I mean, the things that are going to come down the pike for churches in terms of uh, same-sex marriage, in terms of transgenderism, public events that you hold. Look, you hold a fall festival, and if uh, the Equality Act is passed because we lose the Senate, we have a fall festival, and some man who is now a woman wants to come in and use the restroom uh, that women use, and you don't allow him, you are going to face stiff fines and maybe even jail time. You say that's folly. Read page 41 of the Democratic platform, and maybe you'll think differently. And so we're already facing some of the early signs of it, and even what might be done by, you know, presidential decree uh, will be very, very interesting to see. We need to be praying for our nation. It's not over yet. It may be over, but it's not officially over. And even if uh, Joe Biden takes the presidency, listen, he's a godless man. He's a godless man. He's the one who who forced Barack Obama to endorse same-sex marriage. Bar- President Obama ran on marriage being between a man and a woman. But Biden, when being interviewed on national TV, said, no, I, I think it can be between two men and two women. And now then the president changed his mind. He's in favor of murdering little babies in the womb. He's in favor of perversion, and on and on and on and on and on I could go. And if he gets his way through the Senate, we're in trouble. Pray for our nation. 